0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm the System Director for Advanced Practice Providers. And today we're we're honored to have back on one of our original guests on Right Care Baptist, Dr. Ashley Harris, who is the Associate CMO at Baptist Memphis and a recovering geriatrician. Dr. Harris, welcome back to the program.
1: Glad to be here. Glad to be here.
0: Um, so today we want to dive in and talk about delirium, um, which I know you have a, a lot of experience with in the past. Um, so and particularly, I think we want to talk about uh, delirium in the hospitalized patient. Um, but can you just, uh, you know, with some broad strokes, give us an overview Uh, What do you think about when you think about uh, delirium?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those uh, things that we all kind of feel like we know it uh, when we see it. Uh, But then when you try to articulate in words exactly what delirium is, I think it can be a little bit challenging, at least for me. Um, Really, when I think about delirium, I really think about two domains, and that's the disturbance of consciousness. So, uh, typically seeing patients that are really struggling with the ability to focus or sustain attention. Uh, oftentimes that can be a subtle finding that progresses over time, but it's that attentiveness that is kind of a hallmark of the delirium, or lack of attentiveness is a hallmark of a delirious patient. And then, of course, probably the second component is just a, a change in overall cognition. So memory loss, disorientation, language or speech challenges, certainly the potential for perceptual disturbances like uh, you know, auditory or vis- visual hallucinations. And so really those two kind of domains interacting uh, that we see in a hospitalized patient. The other challenge of delirium is that we all, when I say we know it when we see it, I think a lot of us are thinking about the Hyperactive type of delirium, the patient that is physically agitated, you know, lunging, punching, the the uh, the, the pastor or the demure older lady who suddenly is profane, it's totally yeah. out of character. That's what we think of, and that's actually the least common type of delirium. The the most common type of delirium is hypoactive delirium. And in a hospital, I would say we probably label these patients as like the perfect patients. They don't talk, they don't move, they just lay in bed. As the name implies, they're hypoactive. Huh. And so, in fact, the hypoactive uh, delirium patient uh, has just is just as likely to suffer the severe um, morbidity and even mortality associated with delirium as the kind of classic hyperactive delirium. And then also we'll see there is also a classification called mixed delirium, which is some uh, mixture of, um, you know, the um, uh, symptoms of both hyper and hypoactive delirium.
0: So that's interesting. I I actually had the hyperactive clinical picture in my head when we yep. talked about this and tell me are there tools that you use when you go in to assess your patients for delirium
1: yeah a- a- absolutely and I think that you know there are very there are increasingly complex and advanced tools and then there are some very simple tools and I think that for a lot of us um, we have a long way to go uh, in hospitals as far as the assessment of delirium so for me today, I think the simple is good enough because simple is better than no assessment. Probably the most important thing you need, and you can't always have it, but it's so helpful when you have some understanding of the baseline cognitive status of the patient. Because oftentimes I see dementia labeled as delirium because there's not any context or background that, hey, this is actually their normal uh, cognitive state. Um, so I think background and history are very important for me. Uh, certainly the most important thing you do is you have to have the, you have to attempt to communicate with the patient. Uh, it's in that interview and discussion that you're going to detect the disorientation. You're going to, you're going to perceive language and speech challenges, You've really got to be careful because speech can kind of fit social norms, but not have appropriate content. So you're really paying attention to the content of the patient's answers to your questions and discussion. You're obviously assessing the patient. Are are they interacting with you, but looking off at something or communicating with something in the corner? Um, And then it's really, as far as an actual objective assessment, I always use the um, tools that can assess attention. So a simple one might be, can you spell the word farm backwards? Can you spell the word world backwards? Uh, Serial sevens can test attention. Um,
0: That's hard for me nowadays.
1: I know, I know. That is, and that's, it's concerning when, uh, (laughs) When I was uh, doing my fellowship training uh, in Boston, one of the common things they would do is ask their patients to say the days of the week in reverse. And what you find is someone goes, of course, it depends on where you want to start, but they might go Saturday, Friday, Thursday, and then they're talking about something else. They can't maintain enough attention to complete the task. The other was the, the the months of the year in reverse, which also is challenging. <laughs> Actually, um, it, it appears challenging, but when you think about it, you can do it, but you recognize it requires focus and attention, something that a, a delirious patient lacks. So all of those are some quick uh, kind of tools you can use to go, this patient is inattentive. Then also the classic delirium, uh, and I should have mentioned this earlier when we are talking about what delirium is, the classic Presentation is it, it waxes and wanes. So an hour ago he was fine. Now he is talking about what was going on in the 60s, and you know he's um, you know disoriented. And it's that waxing and waning and fluctuation fluctuation that's kind of a hallmark of delirium versus dementia. A patient with dementia can have quote, good days and bad days, but they're not going to have marked fluctuations in their consciousness and cognition over hours. And so that's kind of a, kind of a hallmark difference too.
0: No, that's that's really helpful. And and thanks for kind of differentiating those two. Um, I I did, you know, just have questions about who is at greatest risk for delirium? You know, does dementia put you at greater risk? And what's the difference between delirium versus altermental status, encephalopathy, those sorts of things. I sometimes feel like they get all lumped together.
1: Yeah, and they do. And I think there's a quite a bit of confusion around that. I think a good good question about who's at highest risk for delirium, the way I, I would previously describe this with families, it's like anyone uh, anywhere is susceptible to developing delirium. Uh, if I, let's say, uh, am... Uh, Involved in an automobile accident, put on a lot of medications, put in the ICU, I could develop delirium. And of course, there's a whole subcontext around ICU delirium that, um, you know, you could probably have a separate podcast on. Um, So, but really and truthfully for me, what we know is that 30% of hospitalized patients over the age of 65 will develop delirium. Um, By far, I would say the the most significant risk factor for developing delirium in that subset of patients is any kind of underlying cognitive impairment or previously existing insult to the brain. Uh, So um, Alzheimer's dementia, Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia, um, any type of um, uh, head trauma, uh history of head trauma, history of stroke, vascular dementia type picture. Those patients are, you know, kind of by default at higher risk. And then, you know, patients with multiple medical comorbidities, uh, on multiple medications, as you uh as you increase the number of medications of patients on in the hospital or even home for that matter, uh you, you know, you see this exponential increase in the risk of developing delirium. I think um, you, you know you asked a good question about the difference between altered mental status, um, uh, delirium, encephalopathy. You know I think about encephalopathy kind of being in the in the realm and you know you think about m- metabolic causes for encephalopathy, um, and then certainly that also um, kind of crossroads with what are the underlying causes of delirium? I think, you know, delirium to me is it always, although sometimes we can't find it, there is always an underlying etiology that has brought about the onset of delirium, even when we can't find it. Um, I think altered mental status, I, you know, I, I try not to even use that term anymore. Uh, it still gets used all the time. Um, But I think there's a lack of specificity around that that leaves confusion because a delirious patient can absolutely have altered mental status, but not all altered mental status is delirium. So I think that's kind of how I I differentiate those two. But I mean, I, I think it's a it's an area where and then also, you know, our work to try to improve our documentation. I think sometimes. We, we we pick a word and use them interchangeably when we don't fully understand the differences, and I'm guilty of that, too, uh, in the past. So.
0: so, Dr. Harris, you have a patient that you consider um, to have delirium. Can you walk the audience through what your evaluation or diagnostic testing may be? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, The you know, typically when I see a a patient uh, and there's concern for delirium, that patient's been there in the hospital. They've got their typical um, um, admission evaluation that I can review, but kind of stepping back and just thinking broadly uh, about the potential underlying causes of delirium, you really have to cast a pretty wide net unless there's an obvious kind of a cause or suspicion for a particular cause. So really the things we think of is kind of simple diagnostic tools. CBC uh, obviously looking for, you know, uh, anemia or infection. uh, CMP looking for electrolyte disturbance, uh, liver function, uh, looking at looking for hypoglycemia, uh, renal function, uh, thyroid testing, thyroid uh, function testing your analysis i think probably the most uh kind of uh, you know really a example hallmark example that people will think of is a you know an older adult who's doing quite well uh has some maybe mild underlying cognitive impairment that's unknown develops a, a urinary tract infection and suddenly becomes you know confused agitated um, so, looking for uh, UTI or other infection, typically we'll have a chest x ray. Um, looking at, uh, you might consider B12, uh, folic acid, also thymine. Um, honestly, any older adult that looks like they may have or be at risk for uh, nutritional deficiency, there's a little harm in supplementing thymine. Um, I think uh, also, you know, you can consider an EEG. Uh, I think that uh you know typically in delirium you just see kind of slow diffuse, you know, uh changes in an EEG pattern. Um, you know, I don't always do that, but certainly if there's concern that there might be some kind of unknown seizure component um, or status, uh, then you might do that. Uh rarely, you know, if if you're if you've done the basic workup and there's still there's not any underlying source you might consider an LP. Um, and that's kind of the traditional course. And everybody who's in the hospitals had an EKG. I have seen I have seen an acute MI present actually as delirium in an elderly patient as well. So that's kind of where I would start. ABGs, of course.
0: So Yeah, a lot of different causes, potentially. You know, do you have yeah. a f- favorite mnemonic for remembering those causes? I, I just was Googling right now for, and I found three different ones on the the Jerry um. I, I don't have a favorite, but
1: I'd be interested to hear what your favorite is.
0: So I watched Death. Do you remember that one?
1: Uh,
0: I, yeah, remember I, do think, I, the, I do. I remember that from you know step two or step that's, one studying. That's right. Um, infections, withdrawal, acute metabolic changes, trauma, CNS pathology, hypoxia, deficiencies, mm-hmm. including thymine and B12, like you said. Endocrinopathies, acute vascular toxins and drugs and heavy metal heavy metals. Yeah,
1: good. Good that you brought up toxins and drugs, of course. uh, Probably the you know, we think of infections as a common cause. But very often the the question you ask a family member is, have you recent has your loved one recently started any medications? Uh, And uh, I think medication changes or adjustments in medication regimen is a common common cause of delirium and something you have to really make a point to review carefully Uh, and we could talk about that briefly but you know the common things i think about are uh antihistamine agents like uh you know you've got an older patient who can't sleep and they decide to maybe take some benadryl uh become delirious um also benzodiazepines which we might talk about briefly if we're going to talk about the management of delirium or how we shouldn't manage delirium. But benzodiazepines in older adults uh, can be a common cause of delirium. And then some kind of unusual things like Levaquin would be an example, certain antibiotics. Uh, but leviquin is kind of a classic example of a patient gets prescribed uh, leviquin for outpatient treatment of pneumonia and then becomes delirious. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Toxins, medication history, I think, are, are really, really important
0: that's great and I'm glad you started going down the line of what we shouldn't do for the treatment delirium yeah Um, tell us what you've seen as far as you know the hospital management of delirium I know all of us have been paged in the middle of the night about a patient that is you know acting differently and requests for can I get some Ativan can I get some Haldol or something like this for this patient talk talk to us about that
1: yeah really tough uh really tough subject because as we know i mean there's no fda approved um, uh, medication for the treatment of delirium so we're kind of out on a limb based on you know anecdotal personal experience i think i was very surprised during my training because of course uh, in residency you kind of get accustomed to a certain regimen and then i went doing fellowship work on a specialized geriatrics unit dealing a lot with delirium and completely different. And even amongst experts, there are varieties of opinions about what is acceptable, unacceptable, what is the best practice, and what is not. I think for me, what I felt, um, and what I think the hardest thing to do in these urgent situations when you're, um, you know, in the hospital. Number one, I guess we can just talk briefly about pharmaceutical management, but there's really the whole other realm of non-pharmaceutical management that is, I think, far more important. But when you're getting that acute phone call about someone who's agitated, typically the regimen that I was taught to use was exquisitely low doses of Haldol, Um, 0.5 to 1 milligram, kind of PRN. Uh, The good thing about that is it can be given PO, IM, uh, IV sparingly. Um, Until you begin to achieve some sense of, you know, calming. And this is really should only be done when a patient is has the potential to harm themselves. You know, mild agitation as a result of delirium should be managed as best as possible non-pharmaceutically because of the risks. Uh, what we should not do um, is use benzodiazepines unless, you know, for some reason it was believed this was more like an alcohol withdrawal type syndrome or potentially Lewy body dementia. Those patients uh, can respond negatively to antipsychotics. Uh, but historically, my my I actually had a geriatrician I worked with who would start off in a, in a petite, older patient with 0.25 milligrams of Haldol. Uh, And then, you know, give that PRN maybe, you know, up to every hour as needed until you begin to achieve some response. It's 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 hard to do that in these acute scenarios where people want kind of an immediate uh, response. And that's where I think all of the non-pharmaceutical things come into play. I mean, we really are in hospitals. I mean, we're kind of delirium factories. I mean, we we put people in these situations that create delirium, particularly older patients. And so really th- what we need to do are in a patient who's at risk or the good thing is prevention and treatment can kind of be the same uh, orientation protocols. So how often when we walk in the room, do we remind the patient the day, the the, the day of the week, the day of the month? Uh, what time is it? Uh, we need clocks in our rooms. Uh, we need our windows open. If you walk in the room, an elderly patient, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. The blinds are closed, lights are off. Uh, that's a disorienting environment. So open the windows, open the blinds, help them orient to the to the to the morning. Um, you know, one of the common things that we would try to do would be to put a familiar object in the environment. So have the family bring a family portrait an item from the home that was a focal point in the home so that the patient sees that and that is an opportunity to be kind of it's a calming honestly um object in the environment uh sleep aids uh, i think or you know again up in the day awake during the day uh, not sleeping or napping all day up in a chair up when possible uh really important for sleep some some folks will use melatonin kind of pro- prophylactically uh on admission to kind of help promote sleep at night uh mobilization when possible absolutely you know we've done i think we're moving in the right direction on restraints uh we don't use restraints as often in the hospital and that's a good thing we know that restraints are delirium provoking or delirium worsening uh agents and then i think one of the more profound things i experienced were making sure that patients who have a hearing impairment or visual impairment have their glasses have their hearing aids if they can't hear you uh they can't be oriented uh if they can't see you that's a delirium provoking uh, experience and then also you know we experienced this during covid when visitation was limited there is nothing no that, that is more important than a familiar face at the bedside so encouraging family to be present or a good friend to be present um you know even th- particularly and able to even stay the night when that's possible because that familiar voice or face can really do a better job of reorienting or redirecting a patient that's delirious or struggling uh, with the environment so I think um, you know those things coupled with judicious use of pharmacologic agents for extreme agitation that poses the potential for risk of harm is really the best, um, Uh, you know, the the best tools that we have. The problem is they're all, they're labor intensive, time intensive. And um, so we have to, it requires really structured programs around that. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that we want to try to develop here is a better program. There are, there's already a lot of good work in the ICU, the ICU liberation project around ICU delirium. We need delirium prevention protocols out on the floors at our hospitals too.
0: I think that was really great, and yeah, yeah. the form of pharmacologic treatment is something that I never knew the right answer, whether or not there is, I guess, a, a real right answer. Uh, but we do see a lot of patients, especially those that end up in nursing homes, is a national yeah. crisis about getting put on long-term antipsychotics. Um, how do we avoid?
1: Yeah. And that's the that's the challenge, because there's a black box warning uh, for the treatment of uh, elderly patients with dementia with antipsychotics. They increase risk of stroke, things of that nature. And so I think the key and where I specifically see it in in some some geriatricians will choose to use uh, an atypical antipsychotic like Seroquel or something like that in the evening. Uh, But when we're in the hospital, I try to make it very clear that this has to be a short term treatment modality uh, because, yes, uh, nursing homes, uh, long term care facilities, rehabs are under a lot of pressure, uh, appropriately so not to use long term um, antipsychotics. So I think that, you know, my goal is always to control the most severe symptoms and then attempt to wean off, wean back and get off those agents whenever they're possible and as someone who's worked in long-term care facilities uh some, sometimes um you find yourself in a difficult position where you just have to make that choice to do that and justify why the risks of not doing so exceed the risk of doing so but it's not an easy it's not an easy dilemma that's for sure the other thing that we have to do is uh, in the treatment of delirium is set expectations because there is not uh, a clear path forward for delirium. Some people um, will, let's say they have a urinary tract infection, you treat the UTI two or three days, they're back at baseline. For some people, um, I've seen delirium last for months, episodic confusion, Uh, episodic loss of attention, and it goes on for weeks or months. So you have to prepare families that, um, you know, this isn't a it's not a guaranteed course of recovery. And then for some patients uh, with dementia, particularly, it kind of sets it alters the path forward of the disease process for the underlying dementia, such that my patient, my family member comes in at a certain base point. We know they have Alzheimer's disease. And the decline in cognition is accelerated at the point that delirium uh, occurs, even though the delirium has cleared up, their path, their deterioration in their cognition is kind of on a new line trajectory, and we never quite recover back to baseline. So I've seen that quite often. And in fact, uh, sometimes for some patients with with mild cognitive impairment, kind of sub-diagnosis, delirium is often the first evidence that there's an underlying cognitive issue um you know and so but the challenge is when someone comes in with no known cognitive impairment and they develop delirium you, you you can't develop you can't diagnose someone with delirium in the hospital with alzheimer's disease you know you have to be in a stable medical condition as as really an outpatient even to make that diagnosis but you're you're counseling families that Perhaps the development of this delirium is a warning that, um, you know, there could be some underlying cognitive issues that we need to evaluate further once we get beyond this. And I'm just reflecting back. I, I didn't, in the evaluation of, of of delirium, mention imaging, neuroimaging, I should have. Um, it, you know, I think that for a, a lot of patients admitted to the hospital who have some uh, alteration of their consciousness or confusion will have had a CT scan in the in the ED, certainly that can, can be useful um, to rule out some, you know, some gross unknown uh, issues such as a brain tumor or something like that. If there's obviously concern for a CVA or underlying vascular issue, an MRI can be helpful, but oftentimes I don't find that that's necessary. We're able to find some other metabolic or infectious cause for the underlying delirium that we're able to treat and look for a response
0: no that's that's really great um so i know you know i've learned a lot thank you for, for clearing up this subject that is often um, very difficult to, to understand what's going on if you do you have any last words or, or if you want to summarize what advice you would give to um, yeah. physicians medical staff subject
1: Absolutely. I think that delirium is a subject that deserves more attention than we give it. I think it has an unrecognized burden on patients and families, and we need to do better at recognition and um, treatment and, more importantly, prevention of this condition Um, And so, you know, we as medical staff, hospitals have to kind of work together, I think, to develop protocols and processes that make the hospital a little safer, a little more, a little friendlier for our older patients so that we can prevent this from happening.
0: Thank you. And thank you to everybody for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CMD credit.